Katie is a highly regarded consultant and coach who's been working in senior management roles in organizational change, leadership development, and learning and organization development in organizations for over a decade. She brings evidence-based research from academic studies and combines it with both elite sports experience as well as organizational experience from a range of sectors, including education, retail, utilities, government, insurance, and transport. Katie's unique experience as a dual Olympian and international rowing coach has enabled her to understand the steps needed to perform on a world stage. Katie holds a Master of Science in Coaching Psychology degree from the University of Sydney, postgraduate qualifications uh, in psychology from Deakin University and a science degree from the University of Melbourne. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. So my first question for you uh, is about the importance of tenacity. Um, so we've spoken about this a bit before, uh, but in achieving your, uh, in achieving your goals, um, I'd like you to share with the audience the, sto the story of how you made it to the Olympic team and specifically um, the story of how uh, you built teams to compete, to compete with the uh, AIS. So, because uh, yeah. it's my understanding, um, so I'll just give some background. Uh, mm -hmm. To get into the Olympics, um, you first need to become coxswain of the AIS. And then once you have that, that's pretty much a ticket into the Olympics. And you did this not only once, but you did this twice. Um, mm -hmm. And that takes a lot of goal. Uh, so run us through your thought processes at the time. Yeah, of course. So I, you know, I think you you have heard a little bit of the story, but for the sake of the the broader audience, if they're interested, um, so I was uh, well. I go. I'll go back a step. I started coxing in school, and then I retired in year ten or year nine because I'd reached the what I thought was the pinnacle of sport, which was winning the local race. Um, and it's an early retirement. I, yeah, early retirement. I'd done it all. And it was only when I got to university I really um, started getting involved in rowing again through the clubs there, through a college and then the St Hilda's College and then through the University of Melbourne Boat Club. And, um, you know, for various reasons, I was highlighted as having some talent in the space and got invited onto some camps up at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. So as you mentioned in those days, uh, which was, you know, before the Sydney 2000 Olympics, rowing, uh, the, the pinnacle of rowing was based up in Canberra. That's where the, the core team were. And there was one spot at the AIS for a coxswain, as you said. And so, you know, to make the Australian team, that's where you needed to be. So I'm on these rowing camps up there for weeks at a time, flying up and down from Melbourne. And I was offered the AIS scholarship. So, you know, the, the ticket, if you like, the golden ticket. And I think I was about 22 or 23 at the time doing my science degree at Melbourne Uni. All of my friends are back in Melbourne doing various things as well as juggling rowing. And I just had this gut feeling, um, you know, whether it was maturity at the time, of feeling like I wasn't ready for that spot. So much to the shock and horror of the head coaches, all of the big names in rowing, I turned the scholarship offer down. And, 
didn't really have the opportunity to explain why. I guess the, the coaches at the time weren't interested. They just saw me as this young, um, perceived me as arrogant thing from Melbourne. How dare I come up and turn away <laughs> this you know, amazing opportunity, but I did. And when I look back now, I, you know, I think every time I went on a camp, I was coming up against a different coxswain, a different person to compete against. And often I'd see them for one camp or for half a camp, and then I'd never see them again. So it was like if you didn't make it in those opportunities, you were kind of spat out the other side. And so I think at the time, I felt that I needed to be ready so I wasn't just one of those people that came in for a bit, lost my chance and that was it. So I think I was trying to take the matters into my own hands, but it was all perceived as very arrogant. So, you know, back to Melbourne I go, tail between my legs, um, turned down the AIS scholarship, was not invited on any future camps for the coming months because I'd done my, done my dash. I was too young and too arrogant. That was it. And it was a, a good few months after that, that I, you know, I, I don't know if it was quite this clear cut, but the story I tell, my memory of it was that I woke up one morning and had this real desire then that I wanted to be on the Australian team. I wanted to go to the Olympics. And as part of that, that meant I felt that I needed that AIS scholarship. And so, you know, I, I remember calling the AIS and, and talking to the head coach and um, I don't remember what I said, but along the lines of, oh, hey, I'm ready now, you know, have you <laughs> waited for me type of thing. <laughs> um, and as you can imagine, they hadn't waited for me and they weren't just sitting there with the scholarship papers waiting for me to, you know, grace my, my them with my presence. And so basically I was told that was it. I, I, you know, I'd burnt my opportunity. And so I think for me being told that the opportunity was no longer there made me even more driven to want the opportunity. I think this is and the most interesting part of the story. <laughs> how you just had the, the pure girl to just say no to that decision and do what you did. So I'll, I'll let you explain that. Yeah. So then I, uh, I thought, okay, well, the national rowing championships were coming up and, um, the AIS women in those days, in the, in the eight, which is the boat that a coxswain is, is part of, had never been beaten at the nationals in the, in the women's eight race. And so, of course, I had this brainwave that, well, all I needed to do was to put a boat together of eight people and find the boat itself and get the oars and travel to Tasmania and find the funding to do all of that. And then all I had to do was just beat them. And then surely I'd get the spot. So this was my, you know, radical plan. So I went about trying to do that. And I literally started ringing, um, you know, in those days. I know I look young, but in those days, social media wasn't a thing. <laughs> and so I started ringing Victorian female rowers, most of which I had never met, but I knew their names as being good. So most of them had either just come back from the 96 Atlanta Games or had been on a squad for those Atlanta Olympics and weren't up at the AIS. So I'm literally like cold calling people. 
And it turned out a little bit of luck that there was a lot of Victorian women, really good rowers, that didn't know me, but really liked the idea of beating the AIS <laughs> So before I knew it, I had the names of eight really good female rowers in Victoria that were all going to the nationals already to race in a variety of things. Um, I was able to borrow a boat from one of the schools who happened to have a beautiful brand new women's eight that we could borrow down there and the equipment associated with it. And I had a bit of support from the Victorian Institute of Sport, just, you know, they liked the idea of someone doing something proactive. And let's be honest, they probably quite liked the idea of beating the AIS as well, but they, they yes. couldn't say that. So, um, and I was really fortunate that my parents supported me with a plane ticket there. Um, and so, yeah, went down to Tassie to race. We hadn't even had a training session together, but we jumped in the boat uh, for the race itself. And it was by far, you know, rowing up to the start line, by far the fastest eight I'd ever been in. And I remember um, backing in. So you back your eight into the starting pontoon to start the race. And I remember it was a really, really windy day. And I grew up and learned to row in Ballarat on a lake called Lake Wendaree, which is often in rowing, in the rowing world fondly called Lake Windy. So I knew uh, all about um, steering eights in windy weather. And I remember this moment where we were backing into the starting pontoon and the AIS boat um, had had a couple of goes at getting into the pontoon and they couldn't actually get their boat in. And I just backed it in. It was a bit of luck, but, you know, I backed it in straight up first go. So I was like, yeah, I've got this psychological, you know, up now. Confidence, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest, I was a cocky little 22-year-old. <laughs> so it worked out well. It worked out well. So I had this psychological up and we had a great race. And uh, the long and short of it is we, we beat the AIS women's boat by about 10, 12 seconds which in rowing is a long, huge margin. And as we pulled the boat into the pontoon to, to get out of the boat, the um, head coach walked over to me with the scholarship papers and I got my AIS scholarship, which was the entry um, into being on an AIS on scholarship and then making my first Australian team and then going on and making it to the Sydney Olympic crew. It's an amazing story. It could be the plot for a movie. Um, so I've got a couple of questions um, from hearing that story uh, for the second time. Mm -hmm. And so in hindsight, how do you reflect on the decision to turn down the offer from the AIS? Do you think that was a wise decision? Do you think you weren't ready? Um, what has time taught you about making that decision? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, of course, because it worked out for me, because I ended up getting what I wanted, uh, which I realised was the AIS scholarship and I had the, the opportunity to be on several Australian teams and to go to the Sydney Olympics and get a taste of it and then want to go back for a second Olympics. You know, of course, I'll say it, it was a wise decision, but I also acknowledge it could have worked out very differently. What I 
what I would like to think um, is that I was in a place to feel like I had decisions because rowing or sport was one of several options that I felt like I had in life. Do you know, I was doing a uni degree, so I always felt like I had options career-wise. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I felt like I had all of these options. I had, you know, good groups of friends, so I felt like I had options there. Um, so for me, it was having that range of options, and I would like to think that regardless of how it worked out with rowing, I would have found my feet in something else and pursued another really challenging goal and found reward from that. That's the story I tell myself and that's what I hope I will say to, you know, I've got two young girls around that creating options for yourself and setting yourself challenging goals. That's what my dad used to tell, uh, tell me. And um, with time, I, I realised there's a lot of wisdom to that because if mm -hmm. one option doesn't pan out, you've got other equally good options to turn to. And that's really important for security of mind. Um, it's definitely very good advice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Another question I have is, so there were so many obstacles, it seems, along the, the way. There were financial obstacles with getting a boat together and getting everyone uh, to come to the race. And there were probably like lots of other obstacles along the way, like obstacles of like perhaps willpower, energy and effort calling everyone, organizing this whole thing. Were there any ever, were there ever any points where you thought this is too much, um, this isn't gonna work out well? Was there ever any self-doubt? And if there was, how did you uh, approach that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's funny, you know, I think this is related where often when I first retired from sport, people would say things to me like, um, goodness, you sacrificed so much to do your sport or you gave up so much to do your sport. And in a similar vein, so many things were in your way to succeed in your sport. And I don't think in those days, I didn't necessarily see them as obstacles or sacrifices or difficult things. I saw them as choices. And I still mostly do in life, although there are times nowadays I will talk about hurdles. Um, I think for me, the idea of choices made it feel that, that I had a say in what I was doing. So if I was choosing to, you know, for example, I, I don't remember going to most of my good friends' 18th birthdays and certainly not 21st birthdays. You know, I technically missed out on a lot of those things, but the choices I made were, well, I could still maintain those friendships and I could choose to experience other things. So I'm not choosing a person over another person. I was choosing experiences in life. So that's the way that I saw the obstacles. Um, and even when I think about when I did get that AIS scholarship, for those that know me know that like I'm a really calm person, I'm really good under pressure. But those first three to four months at the AIS, I don't even think I had one night where I slept very well. I felt so much pressure to perform and felt that I really was the youngest and the underdog and I had a long way to go. And so for me, you know, that would have been the time where I probably technically should have felt like, oh, I could walk away. 
I don't remember ever having that feeling. I remember having feelings of, oh, this is full on and I really need to make sure I wake up tomorrow and I bring my best tomorrow. So it was, that was my choice. What does the best look like? And I'd set very specific goals for the next day. So it always felt like I had some control over it. Does that answer the question? Um, yeah, it does. It does mostly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It's interesting how you phrase the obstacles in your mind as not really being obstacles, but just simple choices and not being sacrifices either, but just being simple choices. And that takes away a lot of the, uh, the pain of going for the choice of becoming an Olympian which mm. sort of highlights why, why, why you did it. Um, and yeah. that sounds like a good, good way to approach things that you want. Yes, yeah. you technically are making sacrifices, but it's, it's, if it's in the favor of the greater good and if it's what you want, then that's ultimately a good decision for you. It's probably the best decision you can make. Absolutely. And of course, you know, I say this knowing that the choices I had were pretty good choices, <laughs> do you know? I was choosing between staying on an Australian rowing team or, or trying to, because that was never a given, but working towards staying on an Australian rowing team versus going back to university versus going out there and trying to find a job. I mean, I, you know, I, I say that their choices knowing that I've had a really fortunate life, that they were, they were my choices. And there's a lot of people that, that couldn't even dream of having those options so mm. um yeah. was there any ever anxiety or self-doubt about where you were and you, you were coming along the path of being an olympian were there any uh, were there ever any points where you were like i'm a bit out of my breath um i could go to one of the other options that i have yeah so one story I've told people over the years and, and, you know, it's funny. I didn't necessarily, again, feel like this was an option for me to step away, but it, it could have been a real option. Um, I was on one so, of the... So we talk about having options to do other things and we also talk about yeah. not having the option to do certain things. But that's, that's yeah, cool. absolutely. So I was on one of these, uh, these camps I mentioned, so there would have been... I don't know, 20 plus female rowers on a camp. And I had this sense, I've got to a point, so this was before my first Australian team, where I was constantly being selected as the better cox of my competition. But then, so that should be great. I was on track to make my first Australian team and be the best in the country. But when I saw who I was going to be competing against overseas, they, you know, they had 10 plus years experience on me. You know, I was a nobody there. Which is intimidating. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can't, you know, you can't just get that experience no matter how hard you work. And so I had this strategy of, okay, I need to be really proactive in my development. It's not just about being the best, I need to be constantly asking for feedback and getting feedback on my development. I have to learn faster than any of my competition. So I had this great brainwave that I would just as a starting point, um, ask all of the athletes that I was working with at that point in time, so quite a big squad, just to fill in a piece of paper on one side, they'd write down all the things I'm doing well. And on the other side, they'd write down what I need to improve. 
And so just to reiterate, at this point, I'm probably technically the best female in the country. And I remember collecting these forms at the end. And of the, I don't know, say 24, 25 forms that were filled in, in total, there was maybe one or two points about what I was doing well in total. And there wow. must have been hundreds of things that I needed to improve. Yeah. And having this moment of overwhelm going, okay, so in theory, I'm pretty good, but actually there's not very much I'm doing well. And where do I even start with this long list of things to improve, particularly when a lot of them contradicted each other? So how did you combat um, processing the list? Yeah. So I already kept um, reflective journals on my, on my um, goals for each day. So what I did is I took my list, and I do it all the time now in workplaces, I got some key themes. I used that as an opportunity to actually engage in better conversation with a lot of the athletes I was working with, more constructive conversation about my development. And even to the extent of saying, okay, I'm hearing this, but I'm also hearing this. From your perspective, what do you think that might look like for the whole crew, the whole squad to feel that I'm moving in the right direction? And that process, what I know now in hindsight, was one of the best things I could do. So sure, I ended up with a condensed list of areas to work on. So that was really helpful for me. But more importantly, is I told the athletes that I cared about their opinion, that I would listen to it and I would do something with it. So from that point onwards, even when I got things wrong, there was this sense of trust that I was still trying to work really hard on improving myself. So the whole dynamic changed and it moved from Katie doesn't do this, this and this to wow, Katie learns really, really fast. And all you need to do is just give her that piece of feedback and she'll do something with it. So that changed the dynamic enormously. And it was a matter of weeks between the next time I did a survey, it flipped completely, which is amazing because there's no way I improved that much in a couple of weeks, but it changed the culture of our team and the relationship I had with them. But the That's other piece- such... I... Oh, sorry yeah. for interrupting. Oh, I was going to say, the other piece I did is I, rather than working on everything at once, I'd look at what sessions we had the next day. I'd set myself one learning goal. So what will I learn tomorrow and get better at doing tomorrow? How will I know I've improved? And then that night, I'd look back against my learning goal. I'd make comments, which meant that I was either trying again tomorrow because I didn't do it well enough or I'd pick another one. So again, it felt like it always was within my control. It was just about planning and, and experimenting the next day. Well, that's a really great system of continuous self-improvement that you built for yourself. And yeah. such a big step to ask for feedback from your teammates. Um, that requires a lot of vulnerability, but once you do that, you obviously improve at a much more rapid pace. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Asking for feedback uh, like that is sometimes confronting, but ultimately you come out of the decision, uh, come out of the um, event much better because you've got a lot to work on. 
Absolutely. And I do the same now with a lot of the work I'll do with leaders. You know, I think we often think, whether it was my role as a coxswain or a leader, we often think that it's about the person, but it's often about the relationship, isn't it? And so you don't know how you're going unless you're actually interacting with the other people in those relationships to get that feedback. Yeah. So it also had the secondary benefit, or maybe it was the primary intention for you of creating a much better relationship with your whole team. Yeah. Well, at the time, it was definitely an unintentional benefit. It wasn't planned. Whereas now I'll be more strategic about it and understand that there's great outcomes from that. But yeah, I fluked it back then. <laughs> well, Katie, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the uh, podcast. Time has gone by so quickly. It's already three o'clock.